Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're the last one standing. Our guest is Grady Hendrix, the playful trickster of modern horror. In the last decade he's given us vampire-slaying book clubs, deals with the devil, a tour around the lurid paperback racks of 80s horror fiction, and even a haunted Ikea store. In his new novel, The Final Girl Support Group, he turns his wry attentions to that other great staple of modern American horror, the slasher, or more importantly, the women who defeat them. It's a fun conversation, this, in which Grady and I talk about our favourite slasher movies and the endless appeal of the final girl. We consider why we're all obsessed with the 80s and whether parody can be scary. And I also leave myself wide open to mockery by admitting that even now, as a 37-year-old man, I'm still completely terrified of Freddy Krueger. Before we start, I want to just say one thing. I overuse the word trauma in this episode. I've been overusing it in every episode. It's a word I've realised I use far too flippantly, and after being put straight by Emily Hughes in the last episode, I, I fully intend to give it its proper stature going forward. However, this episode was recorded quite a few weeks ago, and I'm still throwing the word trauma around like a dog toy, so apologies for that. Every day's a school day, right? Well, with that in mind... Grab your weapon of choice and come with me. We're off to summer camp to avoid men in hockey masks. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Grady, and a very warm welcome to Talking Scared. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me, man. Where in the world are you today? Where are we speaking to you from? I am in my tiny, crummy little office in New York City. In New York City. There are so many writers. I reckon 80% of the people I speak to live on the, the East Coast, the Northeast Coast of America. Well, everyone, the, there are a lot. I mean, Portland has, you know, Greg Rucka and Chuck Palahniuk and those guys. Um, and, and there's a big scene in San Diego. Um, but, you know, it's kind of habit. Like, New York's where the publishing industry used to be. Um, and so proximity used to matter, you know, sort of pre-internet. Um, it's interesting. You read a bunch of old horror paperbacks from the seventies and eighties and a disproportionate number of them are set in upstate New York or Connecticut or Massachusetts because it's where these people live. So they could come down to the city to do business, you know, from time to time. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, I'm glad you've mentioned all paperback novels from the 70s and 80s, because we, we will get to that. <laughs> but but to start off, you've got a brand new novel out yesterday at the time this goes live. It's a very, very Grady Hendrix novel, but I also think a little bit different, perhaps, from what people may expect from you. It's called The Final Girl Support Group, and it's out from Berkeley in North America and Titan Books here in the UK. Um, I'm going to apologise, Grady, in advance for how many times I misrefer to it as the Final Girl Support Club, because I keep doing that on Twitter. Not a problem. <laughs> My titles are way too long, so I get them wrong all the time. Your titles are great, but I, I am never, ever able to nail down. Is it the Southern Book Club's Guide to Vampires? Uh, it's the Southern Vampire's Guide to Slaying Book Clubs. 
No, it's it's a Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, but I I mix it up constantly. Yeah, for some reason those those words do, do not come together in my head in any kind of you know concrete order. They're Coherent, complete, yeah, yeah. But the final girl support group that I can manage. I, I apologize every time I say club. I'm really excited to talk about it because it kind of forces us into a conversation about some classic horror movies, which is always one of my favorite things to do. But to start us off, I think the best thing, as ever, is to ask you to give us a little introduction to your your novel. So tell us what we need to know about the Final Girl Support Group. So the Final Girl Support Group is, the short version is a final girl, as everyone knows, is is the woman who survives the horror movie. Sometimes in the case of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, it's the boy. Um, And I always wondered sort of what happened next. And so this is a book about, you know these women years later and and there's been final girl projects before but they always treat them kind of as these like campy screen queen icons and and i want to take it seriously and sort of think through what happens if the worst thing that ever happens to you happened when you were 17 like what happens after the worst night of your life and how that sort of follows you the rest of your life and so it's 20 years later these women have all reacted in different ways. Some are, are hard drinkers. Some have gone total survivalist. Others are in denial. Some have become sort of self-help gurus. And they all meet in a group therapy session and have been for about 16 years. And they're starting to wonder, like, why they're still talking about something that happened to them in high school. And they're drifting apart. And then someone begins to kill them one by one. So that's the book kind of in a nutshell. Um, as you say, it, it's something that's been taken on elsewhere before. We, we will get to that as well, because I think your book stands out from the pack very much. Oh, thanks. In some of the things you've said there, you, you've kind of given very brief answers to about six of my questions. So so let's roll <laughs> it back a little bit and unpick some of this in a bit more detail. Because I create this show for what I assume is quite an informed audience who who understand, you know, what a lot of stuff in horror is, what it means, where it comes from. But the term the final girl, I I do wonder whether everyone has a a full grasp of what that term is and and where it's where it's come from. So I'm happy to to kind of throw in my sort of two penneth worth, but but you tell me first of all, can you elaborate on what we mean exactly by the final girl in, in horror movie lore? Sure. The term sort of first got used really in a mainstream widespread way in a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, I think from 1991 by Carol Clover. And basically it was the woman who survives a horror movie. And she sort of identified common traits between them. They're often virgins or um, not sexually experienced. Um, Many times they're presented with sort of a mannish kind of affect. Um, They often have a boy's name um, or nickname like Stretch or Bobby or or something like that. And uh, usually they are the cautious one. They're the thoughtful one. I sort of took it further than that, but we can get into that later. But that's the essential definition. I really think it was a term I was aware of before clover's book i feel like it was in circulation before then in an informal way but i wouldn't swear to that in a court of law i i always think of the final girl as a really loaded kind of gender specific term that was that was born out of quite angry 
gender criticism in in that second wave feminism of the 80s as you say the the, the conversation is often around the fact that these these girls are virginal and that they are cautious very very reductive idea of of womanhood often seen through the male gaze seen through an idealized perspective and you really unpick that and and take that on head first in this in this novel your final girls are are far from those ideal preening virgins yeah well you know i mean one of the issues with that or one of the reasons for that is because when you're a movie, you got about 90 minutes, basically, with a character. When you're writing a book, you got to be very interior, and you got to really know the people you're writing about in a bigger way. I mean, certainly later drafts of this book where it really sort of came alive for me is when I stopped thinking of these people as just final girls and really got into sort of their families and their backgrounds and their siblings and their lives as sort of human beings beyond their identity as a final girl. Now, not all that stuff is on the page, but for me to write a character convincingly, I kind of have to know that stuff. And so really, I think it's it's a space issue. I mean, you're dealing with a really shallow representation of a person who's got a set number of responses in a slasher movie, whereas in a book, you have to have a much bigger more rounded idea of who that is. So they go from being sort of iconic types to actual individuals. So the setup is that you have these six, is it, am I right, is six? Yeah, there's a, there's a seventh, but she sort of stays hidden until halfway through the book. Yes. And, and we'll shy away from that at, at risk of spoiling things. So you've, you've got these six women and they do at first seem to represent these types um, as you say, there's the survivalist, there's the one who's gone to be very successful, there's the alcoholic, you know, there's there's these these different um, seemingly iconic types, but they are all fully fleshed out characters when, when you get to it. Um, and I just thought that was the thing that really set your book apart from it, as, as we've kind of mentioned, the fact that it's a bit of a crowded marketplace for this in some ways. So, for oh, example... Yeah. So there's like Stephen Graham Jones is the last final girl. There's there's Riley Sagers. I think that's just called Final Girls. Um, there's a number of films that have riffed on it to either horror or often comedic purposes. And and you could argue, I suppose, that that Wes Craven already did a lot of this this meta stuff twenty years ago with Scream. So were you confident going in that you could do something different with the concept? Yeah, I wasn't, I mean, you know, I didn't know Stephen's writing because I started at the time when I wrote this, I started this book, I think the first draft, the finished first draft is dated January 9th, 2014. So I started this a long time ago. And I actually wanted it to be my book after My Best Friend's Exorcism, which was my second novel. And the week I sent it to my editor was the week that Riley Sager's Final Girls book got announced. And so he just wasn't interested in it. He's like, that's already on the market. And then I rewrote it and rewrote it and wanted it to be my book after um, We Sold Our Souls, which was two books later. And he still wasn't that interested in it because by that point, there'd been Scream Queens on TV. Um, There'd been two movies called Final Girls. um, And I wasn't watching any of this stuff. I hadn't read Riley Sager's book because I wanted this book to be done. I wanted it to be my book. And so I was avoiding everything. So I just, I just shelved it. And I think it was 2019, my manager who represents me for a lot of my screenwriting stuff 
was like, dude, books are slow. Do you have anything just, I'm sick of waiting on you to finish a book. Do you have anything just sitting around I can sell? And so I gave him this manuscript and he was like, I can do something with this. And so I actually then showed it to my literary agent. I rewrote it again, rewrote it again and sold it to Berkeley in like December of 2019. You know, when I wrote it, I wasn't aware of anyone else doing this. And I had the title that I'd been talking about with a friend of mine. I was like, oh my God, that'd be such a good title. And it really just came together in bits and pieces. And I'm glad it took that long, although it was deeply frustrating because it wasn't the book it needed to be until I got it there last year, you know? So and, and by then, I'd read Riley Sager's book. I'd, I'd read Stephen's book. I, I'd, I'd seen one of the movies and, and some of the other shows, like bits and pieces of them. So I was more familiar then. But by then, the book, was, my book was so its own thing that I wasn't too worried about like copying what someone else was doing. Um, and yeah, and you know, and Wes Craven really went there first. And, and not just, I would say, in Scream, but also in um, Nightmare on Elm Street 7, New Nightmare. Um, which is, so I rewatched recently, and it's really a much better movie than I remember it being. I, I would say the big weak point in it is Wes Craven's performance as himself. Wes Craven does not make a convincing Wes Craven. Um, but otherwise, really liked it a lot. Um, but anyways, yeah, that was a long-winded answer. I'll be honest with you, Grady. I, I was so traumatized by A Nightmare on Elm Street that I've never had the guts to watch New Nightmare. Really? Yeah, because uh, oh, and also for the record, when I say when I say traumatized by um, Nightmare on Elm Street, I don't mean when I first watched it when I was like twelve, like ludicrously underage. I mean when I watched it in my late twenties. So I watched it as a kid, was fine with it. Watched it at, a, at quite a stressful time in my life in my late twenties, and and it got to me in a way that I I've never been able to really explain to myself or anyone else, and and now I I cannot even begin to kind of engage with Freddy Krueger. <laughs> he just freaks me out really? so much. Yeah. See, you know, it's funny. I rewatch because whenever I do a book, I usually do like a kind of performance as a book tour thing, like less of an author event, which I hate and more sort of a one person show. And so I've been putting one together and that's usually when I watch all the movies and read all the books and everything. Cause I, I generally just watch a couple of things or read a couple of things to write the book. Um, and I've been rewatching the franchises because, you know, I watched them in such a hodgepodge, weird order as a kid and as a, as a university student. And, you know, I'd actually never seen Nightmare until a few years ago. I saw Nightmare 3 first. And then I think I saw 6, which is a real mess. And then I saw New Nightmare and I just wasn't interested. And so it wasn't until I was well out of university that I saw one and two, which I both really like a lot. Um, although I still, four is still my favorite. But um, yeah, so I saw them in such a weird way. So by the time I saw Nightmare One, God, I was so jaded. You know, I liked it a lot. But yeah, I was past the point where it would traumatize me. Yeah, I think I was in a particularly strange headspace. Um but I, I became obviously I, I hadn't I watched it had a nightmare and then became quite frightened of going <laughs> to bed. It was weird. It was a really strange. Um, people talk about you know these profound interactions with film and wow it, wow it got to me. Watching the franchises side by side, like the big ones, you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting what they do. And nightmare is a weird one because 
it's definitely the goofiest of the franchises. You know, it's like Halloween is the one where they were clearly like, no jokes. We don't want jokes in this. Jason, the Friday the 13th one sort of straddled the line a little bit between serious and goofy. The Nightmare movies get so goofy and Freddy's such a ham, but they're also the most sexual of them. And I think it's like, because, you know, the people are having dreams about, you know, having giving birth to Freddy's baby and, and having like a miniature Freddy come out of their birth canal and, and the gloved hand coming up between people's legs and the tongue through the phone, licking the girl's face in one. And, and I really think it's because nightmare is the one where everyone's in bed when it happens. You know what I mean? It's very intimate. It's like Freddy's inside you. There's lots of Freddy inside of people gags. <laughs> I mean, the reason, just on a very, very side note, but people may not know this, one of my favourite facts, one of the reasons that film freaks me out so much is, you know, it's it's semi-based on a true story. Yeah, yeah, the um, the sleeping sickness thing, right? Like, where people were dying in their sleep? Yeah, it was in Laos, where um, yes. a, a number of people reported being followed by a dark character in their dreams, and then they would they would die in their sleep. And supposedly Wes Craven heard about this in the same week. This is the story as I've heard it. He was in his hotel room um, and he, he looked at his hotel room and he saw a figure wearing a fedora, just a silhouette, looking up at his room and then and then slowly walking away. And it freaked him out so much that he put it together with the story of the people in Laos who were dying. And that's where Freddie came from, by all, by all accounts anyway. Yeah, you know, Wes Craven's such an interesting guy. Like... Like, you look at Toby Hooper, right? And it's like, I mean, I think Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist, but really you're looking at, like, you're looking at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And then, I mean, I love Poltergeist a lot. Um, I think it's been done a disservice on home video. It's it's really should get a special edition and be out there more. And then, I mean, he did Life Force, but that's more of a kind of cult thing. But, like, you look at Wes Craven and you've got The Last House on the left, like that early, super in-your-face exploitation shocker. Then, you know, you've got Nightmare on Elm Street. You've got Hills Have Eyes, which is so iconic. You And then you've got Scream, you know, and you've got sort of these three big iconic properties, Nightmare, um, you know, Last House on the Left and Scream. And then you've got all these little ones in between that are a lot of fun, like Serpent in the Rainbow and uh, People Under the Stairs. I mean, the guy is just endlessly inventive. He really doesn't get as much credit as I feel like he should. Yeah, not at all. He, he's the Spielberg of horror, essentially. That's what I've always thought. Yeah, about. yeah, like, I'd, I'd buy that. Yeah. People Under the Stairs, all-time classic. I saw that when I was a kid, and it's like, that's a, that's a perfect gateway horror movie. If you've got kids and you want to kind of introduce them to horror when they're at the right sort of, you know, early teens, and, and also if you, want, you want, want to introduce them to, you know, early kind of social justice in horror films, um, show them People Under the Stairs. It's, it, it's so much fun. Yeah, it's real. It's a lot of fun. Let's move on to your books. I feel like I'm, I'm not giving you the, the the due time you should be given, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we will segue from the franchises because it's something that you do. You know, you they're integral to your novel. So each of these final girls, and well, at least their experiences, I suppose, are are recognisable to committed horror fans, or, or even, I suppose, casual horror fans, because their various backstories, the things that have happened to them to make them final girls, are vaguely analogous to the big franchises. So you've got a version of Laurie Stroll from Halloween, you've got Friday the 13th in there with the camp, uh, and you've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you've even got a reference to Leprechaun, 
Yeah, well, you know, it's, I feel like at this point, everyone in pop culture, I mean, not everyone, obviously, there are always exceptions, but I feel like the idea of a final girl is pretty widespread. And I also feel like people, even if they don't love horror, have a general idea of the summer camp killer and the prom night killer and the guy killing the babysitter and the Christmas Santa Claus killer, you know, I feel like, and the, the redneck cannibal family, like people know those tropes and, and they were really, really fun to do something with because there's so much more to be said about them. You know, slashers come with this weird association among horror fans in particular to the 80s and sort of this campy, comforting nostalgia that we all feel towards towards these movies we either grew up on or, or saw as kids. But really, when you think about it, a slasher is about a guy in a supposedly safe environment like a school or a college or a camp going through it very methodically and killing everyone he finds one by one. And in the States, that is the modern day horror, um, real life horror template, right? For a school shooting or a college school shooting or a mall shooting or, or any of these public shootings that seem to happen on a week- weekly basis here. So it was really interesting to take these things that were so associated with this comforting 80s nostalgia and sort of rub them against this modern day template that they almost reflect or anticipated to some extent and, and sort of like be there for the frisson between the two. Yeah, that's something that you do really well in this sort of peripheral commentary. So w- when you hold this book as an artifact, there's kind of ephemera littered through it. There are letters, there are reviews from magazines that, you know, artificial ones, but they, they look like snippets in a scrapbook. There's a lot of content in there that you manage to get across without interrupting the story by putting it in the margins. And and we can talk about some of that because you've, you've touched on some of it there already. So nostalgia, first of all. There's one point in the novel where one of the characters says, for us, nostalgia and violence are inextricably linked. And she's, of course, talking about how the world has turned her very real horror story into a piece of media that they consumed and now look back on fondly. But it it felt like one of the many moments in the book when perhaps you were asking the reader to consider his or, or her own relationship with nostalgia and violence. Well, a little bit. I mean, you know, it's it's I I don't have the reader that clearly in mind when I'm writing these. Like, I mean, I do later when I'm cleaning the book up and editing it, but really I'm focusing on the characters and what feels real to them. And I think for any of these final girls, you know, everyone has all this fondness for high school, but do you think that kids who've gone through a school shooting will, or will their memories of high school be caught up with memories of losing their friends? And so you wind up with this really complicated um, way of looking at memory for people, you know, and way of looking at like um, how they think about high school and their nostalgia. I mean, so many of us, as we get older, we think back on high school as this formative experience and this, this experience, it's really, you know, we have these really powerful friendships and we had these these really great moments when we sort of did new things for the first time. 
And if you have a, a hideous act of violence in the middle of that, what, what does that do? You know, and I, and I couldn't even figure that out. You know, I, for me, I had the character raise that issue and then kind of leave it there because I don't know what that means. I don't have any experience with that, you know? That, this is really reassuring me, Grady, because there's another part where one of the final girls has written uh, in a letter. Um, she, to paraphrase, she writes, what does it say about us that so much of the entertainment we consume is about killing women? And I was going to ask you whether that was your character speaking or that was you speaking. And I'm relieved to hear it's your character. <laughs> you know, it's both in a way. I mean, I do think it's a good question. You know, one of the things that inspired this book was... I realized that as a horror fan, I'd spent a lot of my life watching people getting murdered for fun. I mean, and, and often often women, you know, but I do think it's a question worth raising. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with horror, quote unquote wrong. I don't think, it, it, you know, it, it's somehow inherently misogynistic, although I think there is misogynistic horror out there. But I do think it's a question that really bears raising is what does this mean? Like, what are we doing here? You know, mm. and one thing I've been very lucky about is in my career, I've gotten to rewrite things that bug me. You know, I was always bugged by the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 2, where Alice Hardy, the final girl from Part 1, just gets murdered. And I've always thought that was just so offhanded and so cruel and mean. And I got to rewrite it with this book. Um, I've always thought it was really weird that exorcisms, the entertainment around exorcisms was basically a teenage girl tied to a bed while some old men shout at her. And I, it was really nice for me to get a chance to rewrite that with my best friend's exorcism. So I've always, I've, I've been lucky that I get to rewrite some of this stuff that's kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. I'm going to come back to that because that is at the, the fulcrum of some of the questions I've got to ask you, that, that sense of rewriting, it fascinates me. But to stick for a moment with this question of, you know, what does it say about us that we we revel in the, the violence towards women? What, what I meant was when I said I was reassured that it's not you asking that question is that I I have a problem with the implication that if you are a horror fan, there is something wrong with you. And, I, and I'm glad that this isn't a book that is is kind of preaching to the audience that they shouldn't enjoy this kind of stuff. Right. One of the smuggest moments in horror that really sticks in my craw, to use your phrase, is, is in Michael Haneke's Funny Games. Mm, yeah. You know, when, when, they, when they run back the VHS, as if to mm -hmm. imply why are you watching this? They Basically, for those who haven't seen it, you're watching some scene of awful trauma and then the villain actually turns to the camera and rewinds and makes you watch it again. And I, it's a great film, but I find it an, an unutterably smug moment in cinema where they're trying to yeah. you know, make, make me feel bad for watching something that you have, you have made and sold to me. You don't get both sides of the argument. That, that's my take on that, really. Yeah, I mean, to me, what bugs me about that scene in Funny Games is the director seems to feel like he's better than his material. Yes. And my feeling is, well, why are you making the material then? I mean, like, yeah. why are you making a movie that you think is beneath you? Why are you wasting your time? Yeah, and if you do think that, do not also treat the audience as if they are complicit in some way with a yeah. uh, degraded medium. Anyway, so I'm just I'm relieved to know that that's not what's happening in your book. <laughs> but as as you say, the question still stands, 
And obviously, we're not going to unpick a century of cinematic misogyny in a short conversation. But there is something, isn't there, in the fact that these films are, that they revel so much in, if not sexualized, then at least implied sexualized violence against women, you know, phallic objects and penetration and all those kinds of things. Uh, and there, there is something in that. And, and as you said, horror isn't inherently misogynistic. I just wonder if because our culture is misogynistic, perhaps horror can't help but reflect that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the latter. You know, it's the movies reflect the culture that makes them. Um, horror has had moments when it's been incredibly, I would say, out of step with what's around it. You know, I definitely think um, in the early 90s. But I got to say, like, I enjoy horror a lot because I feel like it says directly what a lot of other things say, a lot of other forms of entertainment say obliquely. And, you know, like, for example... I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre says a lot more directly how America felt about women than, say, I don't know, The Towering Inferno, which also came out that year. Basically, women are meat to be attacked and treated like garbage and, you know, put through the ringer and, and, and deserve it in some cases. And I think the nice thing about the movie is it gives Sally Hardesty a way out. She escapes. She gets away from that, you know? And so I think that, that that in a way, it's just reflecting what's around it in a much more direct, much less oblique manner. That's why I was surprised to hear that your book uh, predates the Trump administration. Because <laughs> I, I, I thought that this book had been written as a horror-inflected response to the the increase well it hopefully it's ended now but that four-year period in which it, it was okay to treat women as meat again right in which it was endorsed by the powers that be and i assumed you'd written it because to be honest I, I i became so obsessed by trump that i find it difficult to see anything as not in some way a parody of of his america but i thought you were responding to that where it, in fact it just happened to be a kind of prescient take on on what was coming down the down the tubes. Well, you know, it's if I was gonna if one of my books was gonna be my Trump book, it would probably be We Sold Our Souls, my heavy metal horror novel, because that book I was really having a hard time getting off the ground. It was gonna be sort of a it was about a, a middle aged uh, person who who used to be in a metal band and and they were gonna make it big and then the lead singer broke away and became this huge celebrity as a solo act and kind of stole some of the music from the old band. And it picks up in, in, you know, in this character's in middle age and, and they just can't let that go. They can't let it go. And um, it turns into a whole thing about soul sucking demons and all this. And um, I was having a really hard time with it. It was going to be sort of this book about male anger and how I see a lot of guys my age, I'm in my forties who really held on to anger for way too long. But at the same time, it's kind of what gets them up in the morning and it's sort of this double-edged sword. And I went to an election night party in 2016 at a friend's house. They were all in for Clinton and, and, you know, as was I, but they were really all in for Clinton, like doing the door knocking and contributions and canvassing. And it was 
bad. Like it was really bad. Like, you know, it's, it's that 940 at night and Florida's just gone to Trump and the artisanal charcuterie platter is curdling. And one of the hosts has locked themselves in the bathroom because she's crying. And the other host is just on the couch looking at their phone and refreshing their feed and not talking to anyone. And my wife and I kind of sidestepped our way out of there and um, didn't even say goodbye. And we got on the elevator and they were on the ninth floor. And by the time we got to the first floor, I realized that if I was going to write a book about someone who was basically told that they had no value, that they were basically anything they accomplished was garbage, it had to be a woman. That was a character who had to be a woman right then in 2016. And then the book, it wasn't easy after that, but that's when I able to get that book done. And looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, this was definitely written during the Trump administration. But no, this one, this one's about horror, you know? And I mean, this one's, it's, it's a, a fun book and it's not like my therapy session, but it really is my book about sort of living with horror and what that means to me and, and thinking my way through it. It is a really fun book, actually. It's This is the thing that I say a lot. I, I find myself, when I listen back to these shows when I'm editing, I, I find it a bit surprising and also a bit cringeworthy how often I just simply say that something is fun. And I think that the word fun has become a little bit downgraded. It sounds like damning with faint praise. But I think there's a lot to be said for fun, particularly in horror, which when we've got all this, you know, move towards elevated horror, he says in inverted commas, and, you know, all all of this increasing desire to make horror in some way respectable. I think fun is a very, very underrated characteristic. Yeah, well, why do something if it's not fun? Well, indeed. Um, like, literally, what's the point? Um, and also, you know, the reason I like horror is because it's not boring. Sci-fi, I loved sci-fi when I was a kid, but as I got older, I was kind of like, I don't care about the planet Waldorn. I don't care about people who switch genders and their societies based around, you know, this sort of idea of fluid gender. I don't relate to that. That's not me. I like the world around me, just a not boring version of the world around me. Um, yeah. And that's, to me, what horror is. Yeah, and I think the slasher movie, as you already alluded to before, is, is, a, is kind of like comfort horror which is a weird thing to say about extremely violent films, but it you take something like Friday the 13th or, or even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which were no doubt deeply troubling to audiences. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think Friday the 13th was, but, you know, uh, from Psycho to Peeping Tom to Texas Chainsaw, they, they will have been troubling texts when they first came out, but now we look back at them with great fondness. Whereas something like, I don't know, Hereditary or The Witch... We don't seem to have the same relationship with, with those films and those texts. And I think there is something in that 80s nostalgia for the man in the mask with the sharp weapon. I think it's the simplicity of it and the, the cleanness of the narrative. And to some extent, the, the cliche that for horror people, it, it's kind of like a warm bath. Yeah, no, and I appreciate it. But I got to say, you know, wait till we're on Hereditary 5. You know, like, like that'll probably <laughs> oh, please, seem pretty no. comforting once we get up there. But also, you know, I think there's a real comfort in formula. Some genres have a formula that's more readily apparent than others. Uh, Westerns, horror is definitely one of those romances and rom-coms. But formula is very comforting because there's an understanding of what it is. And then 
a, a movie or a book can tweak that formula, it can change that formula, can play with that formula, can play into that formula or against that formula. But we all sort of start from a common ground. And I think that's something that's really, really comforting to people. Okay, well, well, let's address that formula then, because taking apart formulas and deconstructing them and redeploying them is, is kind of your your brand, to use an awful marketing term. There's a lot of authors, right, who, if I'd seen their name attached to this idea, I'd have been worried. Because, you know, reinvigoration and derivation are two sides of a very, very narrow coin. <laughs> and... But, but your brand of horror in particular seems well suited to this kind of, of self-aware approach. And it made me think about your books, each of your books. So, so let's quickly run through your back catalogue, right? You you ticked off vampires in the Southern, Southern Book, hang on, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. And then you, you dealt with demons and possession in My Best Friend's Exorcism. And then you dealt with the devil and Satanism in, in, in Sold Our Souls. And, and even your first novel, Horror Store, for all its quirks and textual oddities, that still takes on the fundamental American trope of the old haunted asylum. Right. So when we come to the final girl, it feels like a kind of necessary next step in this thing you're doing to map American horror culture. Kind of much in the same way as something like the show American Horror Story, but but mu- I, I hate that show. Like your book is worlds apart. But is, is that something you're intentionally doing, trying to rewrite the American horror book, for want of a better phrase? Well, yes and no. I mean, what I'm intentionally trying to do is is pay my mortgage. <laughs> And, 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 you know, and you, and you kind of do what you do and you try to play to your strengths, but I really, really enjoy taking something that is familiar and has become a little shop worn and trying to figure out why it was scary in the first place and what you can do with it. And, you know, I think a lot of it, honestly, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit, a lot of it, I think, goes back to Alan Moore. Um, I was a big fan of his Swamp Thing run when I was a kid, and I didn't really buy new comic books, but I would go to this um, uh, used bookstore that sold old comics just sort of in a big rummage bin for like a quarter each. And um, I had like three or four issues of Swamp Thing. And two of them were from, um, actually, no, three of them were from his American Gothic run where he takes Swamp Thing on this kind of road trip across America. And in each issue, he kind of encounters another iconic American horror trope, like a haunted house, but he does a new version of it. Um, Or vampires, but you know, they're underwater sex vampires, Um, or, you know, uh, werewolves. Um, And he sort of makes parallels between lycanthropy and menstruation cycles and, and sort of how women are treated. I think that sort of first introduced me to that idea of like, there's a lot of power in these ideas. And if you can just bang off the rust and rummage around underneath the hood, you can get something running again that's pretty souped up and awesome. In many ways, considering all of that, the first decade of your published work, so the books I just mentioned, they, on reflection, remind me hugely of Stephen King's early trajectory. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he did the same thing. He took existing tropes and he applied 
a kind of small town American realist context. So he did Vampires in Salem's Lot. He did Hauntings in in The Shining. Carrie is a witch narrative. You know, you can't. It's just the witch. Um, you seem to be equally reinvigorating cliche, and, and I like that phrase of knocking the rust off. But where he did it with realism, you're doing it with this self-aware, culturally savvy kind of meta commentary. Is, is that fair? Yeah, and I think I and I think that's the difference in our approaches has a lot to do with the time we're writing. You know, Stephen King really loved those realist writers like Jack London and, and Theodore Dreiser. And, and so he wanted to write realist novels. And there was a big market for big, fat, realist paperbacks in the 70s when he started his career. Um, I'm writing at a time when there you know, was a huge appetite for shorter, sharper, more pop culturally savvy books, you know? And so that's kind of what I'm coming out of. I mean, he he was going to Jack London and Theodore Dreiser, and I'm going to like uh, Alan Moore and Douglas Adams and Anne Rice and Lisey Andrews. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's and Stephen King, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it has a lot to do with the world in which we're writing and what kind of books are acceptable in that world. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because th- this book... Um... I'm going to keep saying the name, the Final Girl Support Group. This comes at, at the end of a decade that I think has been marked. Its cultural dominant has been nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, you've only got to look back over the, the culture of the last sort of ten years, and everything is a reboot. Everything is a you know a retake, a sequel, a prequel. And frankly, it's it's quite tiresome i I have this problem i have this kind of issue with nostalgia as as the the, book your book itself takes it on and says that people need to basically move on um but i i have a thing about nostalgia because i think the nostalgia is memory for a thing that never existed in the first place well you know every book i write i want it to be the last one like, I don't want anyone writing exorcism books after my best friend's exorcism. I don't want any more Final Girl stuff after Final Girl's part. I want to have the last word. I'm that kind of jerk who has to have the last word in an argument. I've got to have the good exit line. Uh, and so I think that's one reason my books are really aware of what's come before them. And I also think I just like to think about things. Like, you know, like, I really like to think way too hard about stuff. I mean... I went way, way, way down the rabbit hole with slashers when I was when I was writing this. And you know, what does this mean? And where, how far back does this go? And what are the metaphysical implications? And you know, a lot of it's BS. But a big part of writing a book is getting super duper focused and obsessed with a single idea. And from that, I've got to ask the kind of the cheesy question, just because you give me a perfect oh, yeah. tee up. What's your favorite slasher movie? Oh, Black Christmas, um, without a doubt. It's uh, it's it's so off model, you know. I mean, I, I find Billy the killer in it really disturbing because you literally only ever see. Him. I've said literally too many times in this interview. I sound like a moron. You only see his eye and you hear his voice, and I find the things he says genuinely disturbing. And I find so much of that movie just upsetting but i also find it so comforting because it takes place at christmas and it's so cozy and canadian which are which are things i find very um um you know that's my warm bath so really black christmas but i mean my taste in in slashers 
is weird. Like my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street is four. I think Alice Johnson's one of my favorite final girls. Uh, Friday the 13th, I'm part two all the way. Um, uh, Halloween, I'm a big, big H2O fan. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, I I just wind up, Texas Chainsaw, it's hard to argue with the original though. That's mm. the one movie that's ever sincerely in a deep way upset and traumatized me. Right. We'll get to that in the Patreon because I have a question all about horror films that have traumatized you. So that's a little that's a little teaser uh, promo for my my Patreon there. Um, Black Christmas, though, I watched for the first time this Christmas Eve. Oh, what do you think? It's like all of these things. When you watch something that has that often set the template, by the time you see it, the template has run so far from it that it feels quite quite minor you know but trying to watch it with a with an eye thinking what it would be like free of all that baggage it's a creepy creepy film and like you say billy's yeah. voice and 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 the, the death scene where the girl goes up to the attic is is horrible but the thing i liked about it the most is that it's a it's a weird little film in the slasher history because it's way more feminist than almost mm-hmm. any yeah. of the of the films that came after it yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, because I've seen it by myself, I've seen it with friends, I've seen it in an audience. And the thing I love about Black Christmas, too, is there's a real tendency with audiences watching a horror movie to laugh in order to let the people around them sort of yes. know, to sort of signal to people around them that they get it and that they're not disturbed by this. Mm-hmm. And I always love that when it starts in Black Christmas, because that first phone call from Billy People start laughing, and by the time it's over, everyone's just listening because it's so upsetting. And the women on screen, the actresses are just listening silently, and it's showing going from face to face. And the audience is just listening, and it just wipes, it just dries that laughter right up, Mm -hmm. and I love it. I also love the fact that it's you never quite know who, what, or, or more importantly, why billy is what he is like you get these little elliptical comments that he makes about things that you know may have happened in his past and you can kind of create your own narrative but you never actually know and it makes him much more frightening and i'm pretty sure he's not dead at the end of that movie i agree with you yeah it's uh yeah it's 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 a good film it's you can tell it's kind of a inaugural text in in the tradition um, and like I say, it's yeah. Like if it, the thing I'll compare it to is if you if you see Alien for the first time these days, well, you've seen a, you've probably seen a million horror movies since. If you see Jaws for the first time, you've probably seen a million creature features since. But and it's 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 quite possible to watch those films now and just see them as lesser versions of the things they inspired. But you've got to look for the thing. You've got to look for the kernel in it that that made it what it was the first time round. I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also, you know, a lot of these first movies that have become sort of these cultural landmarks, I think they still work. And the trick is getting an audience to see what's there and not what they expect to be there. Um, Rocky, uh, Death Wish, Jaws, the first Alien, the first Friday the 13th. I mean, getting people to get past the cultural baggage to see what's actually there is a real trick, but if they can, people are like, oh, Rocky is sort of this kitchen sink 
realist drama with boxing. You know, Death Wish is actually this real anti-vigilante movie. Like, you know, Alien is a haunted house movie. Like, you know, it's it's just interesting to sort of see how much these movies sort of have this this sort of spark in them. And you can tell why they all spawn franchises and knockoffs and spin-offs. Yeah. Well, and that kind of brings us to my my last question about the novel. I was thinking a lot about parody and pastiche, right? Um, and essentially, my understanding is that, you know, pastiche is kind of an empty imitation of something, whereas parody is, is different. And I, there's a critic called Linda Hutchin who famously defined parody as repetition with critical difference. As, as far as I see it, that, that means that parody takes a template or a tradition, so in your case, the slasher movie, and then it, it casts a critical eye over that tradition whilst at the same time adding earnestly to that same tradition. Sure. No, I, I'll, I'll buy that. Cool. Right. Okay. And you mentioned this before, that you always want to write the final note. You always, you always want to write the last one of something. Do you think that the final girl and the slasher movie have got anything left to offer? Or have we reached the end of the road with, with them? You know, it's interesting, right? Like, because for me, because I said that about wanting to write the last one, I have to say no, because I've done it. It's finished. Um, you know, you can you can catch the closing credits and Final Girl Support Group. Good night. Lights are coming on. We're going to sweep up the popcorn now. Um, but no, I mean, and there's, there's authors who are doing stuff with it that I've never thought of. You know, I think Stephen Graham Jones is sort of obsessed with slashers and, and Final Girls. And he's got a Final Girl book coming out this August, I think. Uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw, which is great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think people are always coming up with new things. No one saw Scream coming when it, when it came out, you know. So, no, I think there's stuff out there. But as far as I'm concerned, like, I, I went into my own personal final girl wing inside my brain. I, you know, t- turned, turned the power out, turned the gas off, put sheets over all the furnitures, and I've locked the door behind me. And, and kind of walked away from the slow motion fireball exploding. Um, so, yeah, so, so I'm done, but I'm sure other people who are smarter than me are not. Well, I think once again, you've got ahead of the zeitgeist because the most famous final girl ever, Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode in Halloween, has come back as a prepared, survivalist, older, badass woman. And you, yeah. wrote, you wrote that in Lynette, by the sound of things, six years ago. So yeah. it seems like, you know, if there is life in the final girl, it's going, it sounds like it could be for a while life in your kind of final girl, at least. Age is one of the great things I love to play with um, because I don't understand why so many characters in books are roughly the same age. They seem to be somewhere between 18 and 28. Um, and for me, at least, I'm like, dude, I, I want to see Friday the 13th when everyone's 87 or 88 or 95. Um, you know, I, I want to see a final girl book where the final girl is, you know, bedridden and um, has dementia. Like, g- give me that. Yeah, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a thing I agree with as well. I think we need more elderly protagonists in fiction, particularly in horror. Because I think, as I've said on this show before, if horror tends to be to do with the past, 
and tends to, to be to do with things coming back to haunt us, then would it not make sense to have characters who've got more of a past and have got more yeah. perspective? You no, know, I think that's... that's a smart way to put it. Yeah. I always think that like, I always am surprised with movies, like low budget movies. Cause I'm like, dude, hiring a very young or a very old actor is like the best special effect. As soon as they go on screen, that's what everyone's looking at. And young actors, who wants to bother, right? You got to have a tutor on set. They can only work four hours a day or something ridiculous. But an 80-year-old actor, a 75-year-old actor, hell, man, you just found the star of your movie and you don't even know it. Like, I'm amazed more small movies don't just hire older actors because that's everyone wants to watch them. They're so unique right now. Well, yeah, I mean, Anthony Hopkins just won the record, didn't he, as the uh, the oldest ever yeah. best. So that that kind of tells you all you need to know, really. Um, yeah. Well, Grady, I mean, I've taken up an hour of your time there. So this just brings us to the last few questions that I ask each guest. But as the author of Paperback from Hell, uh, which, by the way, I I adore, um, oh, I think... I mean, I ask every, everyone this question, but I think you may be better equipped than most to answer it. Can you recommend a book for my my listeners to read? And what would it be and why? If there's anyone out there who has not read Barry Wood's The Tribe, it's a really phenomenal book. Um, she wrote this book. It was a big paperback bestseller back in the day. Valancourt put an edition of it out. I did the introduction for it. Um but it's this great whopping 1979 novel of New York about um, a black police detective who's dealing with sort of interdepartmental racial politics and all that. And his best friend is a is a Orthodox Jew whose father's a Holocaust survivor who gets killed in a mugging. And it also is about a golem. And it all takes place in Brooklyn. And it's one of those long big, sprawling, epic novels that just, it's perfect for summer. You can just lose yourself in it. And um, and Barry Wood, she had just left New York, which is where she really, a city she loved and was really devoted to and had to move to Connecticut for tax reasons. And this was sort of her last farewell to New York. And she hates it. She thinks it's a failure of a book. And I think she's wrong. I just think her life experience colors how she sees the book. It is a beautiful portrait of the sort of dirty Big Apple back in the 70s and 80s. And then the other one I was just going to say is if you want something shorter than that, um, we also republished When Darkness Loves Us by Elizabeth Ingstrom, which is just, it's two novellas that are, were, were issued together originally. It is. They are both deeply messed up books that, in all the best ways, and I cannot recommend them more to people who want to be upset. Yeah, that's one that I've had on my list since I read Paperback from Hell, so I need to check that one out. I'll add those both to the show notes for people who want to check them out. And lastly, Grady, what truly scares you? Oh, being poor. Um, I, I've, I've had times in my life when you know, you, you look in your bank account and there is not enough there to cover the bills that are coming at the end of the month. And you were like looking in the sofa for, for money to buy like pot noodles. And it's the worst feeling on earth. There's nothing that makes you feel more like you're clinging to the very edge of the world and you're about to slip off. And once you lose that grip, you're, you're nowhere. You're a nobody. You're nothing. Um, and it is 
absolutely terrifying. So yeah, being I know it's not a glamorous answer, but 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 not being able to pay the bills is the most terrifying feeling on earth. And it's something that, that motivates me and lives in my head constantly. Well, you heard it there, folks. Greg needs to pay his bills, so go and buy a copy of the last, <laughs> the, the final Go Support Group. Uh, consider it your good turn for the day, and you'll enjoy it. Grady, thank you so very much for your time. I, I really enjoyed the book. It's, it's a treat for anyone who... Well, anyone who loves horror, because the films it riffs on are not niche. Anyone who loves horror will have enough knowledge to bring to this and enjoy it, and I hope it gets all the success it deserves. But Grady Hendrix... Thank you for talking scared. Oh, dude, no, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So who's your favourite slasher and final girl? Mine, for the record, are Candyman and Laurie Strode, respectively. Candyman's origins are just so rich and ripe and tragic. He's the purest personification of revenge. And Laurie, Jamie Lee's character in Halloween, she's the best because, well, she was cool in 78 and even cooler as a terrifying prepper grandma with a shotgun 40 years later. I'm going to take it on trust that you've all seen Candyman and the original Carpenter Halloween, but if you haven't caught up with the 2018 sequel, then I demand you do so immediately. I am interested to know your your own favourites though, so come respond to my question on Twitter at Talk Scared Pod. Going back to Grady's book, the final girl support group is a surprise. I, I kind of went in expecting parody and irony and all of those meta commentary trimmings, and they're there for sure, but they laid on top of an actually meaningful and, and genuinely thrilling story. If you haven't seen all of these movies we've talked about, don't worry, Grady leads you by the hand and the tale itself is more than enough. If you do know your Sally Hardesty from your Nancy Thompson, then all that extra stuff is just like candy on top of a cake. The book also has a lot to say about the role of horror in our society. Like I made clear to Grady, I'm firmly in the camp that watching horror movies does not mean you are sick, bad, wrong or disturbed. But we do still have to confront the fact that as a culture we take great enjoyment from a genre that doesn't just feature, but is actually predicated on violence to women, often highly sexualised violence at that. I'm not sure what to make of that myself, to be honest, except to say that, even with all of that said, I would still feel a lot safer in a horror convention right now than an English football match. That kind of debate is interesting though, and I will use it to segue seamlessly into the next announcement. Or semi-announcement, I suppose, as I'm still holding back details. Right, basically, soon, very soon, I'm hoping that this show will collaborate with a brand new app for book lovers. Uh, This isn't an ad, by the way, it's a genuine engagement between me and them. It's a fairly new app on the market, and it's built to offer lots of ways to for you guys to engage with books, to build reading lists and learn what is coming out and stuff. But it also means, and this is the nub of it, that I can run a digital book club. A chance for us to have just the kind of conversation that the Final Girl Support Club deserves. More details are forthcoming imminently. As soon as I know what's happening, you'll know. 
But it's exciting because as I keep saying, my favourite part of this after talking to the authors is talking to you guys. If we can get some kind of tool that lets that happen, great. For now though, get in touch with the standard channels. As I mentioned, Twitter is at TalkScaredPod and I'm literally always there. Instagram is talking underscore scared underscore pod. And I'm trying to engage a lot more with that. So please come follow me. Or you can email direct to talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Lastly, my weekly shill for money. (laughs) You can support the show and get loads of bonus content on Patreon. The link's in the show notes on my Twitter page. Or you can just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. There'll be... A new episode on the best ever summer horror reading coming soon. And I'm doing a special patron interview with Zoe Rose, a.k.a. Zobo with a shotgun. All about the most extreme end of the horror spectrum. Expect vileness. Yeah, a lot of good stuff coming out on that. As ever, all the books mentioned in this episode are listed in the show notes. I draw some special attention to Carol Clover's Men, Women and Chainsaws, which... Let's face it, started all this. It's an academic book, but highly readable and a great snapshot of horror theory if you've not dipped a toe into that kind of thing. At the other end of the spectrum, definitely check out Grady's Paperbacks from Hell. It's a beautiful book in its own right, full of artwork, stunning, very funny, but also a lovely, nostalgic journey back into the heyday of horror. You'll all find new stuff to read, And at least one thing that you read as a kid and had forgotten all about until you see its horribly garish cover. (laughs) Lastly, check out Stephen Graham Jones' The Last Final Girl. Because Stephen is on the show in August talking about his new postmodern slasher horror, My Heart is a Chainsaw. That book is fantastic. It's a great counterpoint to Grady's novel. Um, They cover similar ground in very different ways. My Heart is a Chainsaw, it's got one of the most breathtaking endings I've read in recent horror. And you're going to love it. So do the homework and read Stephen's Last Final Girl. Because he's becoming a one-man industry in taking the slasher convention and turning it inside out. Altogether though, you've got quite the reading and quite the watching list from this episode. Get on it, because the slasher is back and knowledge could save your life. But until then... Have sex, drink alcohol, check out that noise in the basement, ideally in your night clothes, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.